Um, today is what we might call just sort of a one-off message. It's not part of a series. We just finished going through the book of Jonah, just four short chapters, but I hope you enjoyed remembering and recounting, sort of reliving that story. We learned a lot. Uh, next week, we'll begin another short series on the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, as some of us say Malachi, you know, uh, we like to do that, right? Those are our Italian friends. We say Malachi, that's right. Um, that's it. And so the Italian prophet, thank you. But, um, and so there's a lot of interesting things, of course, that we can learn from that, um, you know, from Malachi. And so uh, it's maybe one of those prophets of those books that we don't often reference. You know, there's things in there about about giving that we'll hear about, and we'll touch on that as well. But um, he is really the last prophet that we understand and know about called by God before John the Baptist. And so his words are, are quite appropriate and important as they then, then lead to centuries of sort of quiet and stillness from the voice and the Word of God before John the Baptist comes on the scene. And so it will help bridge us from the Old Testament, looking at all that God is speaking to us through Malachi, and then bridge us into our study in the Gospel of Mark, which we'll pick up after that. Okay, So you'll see more about that coming up in the weeks ahead. But today, I wanted to talk about grace. Now, it's a, it's a very common word. It's a word we use a lot as Christians. It is a word, perhaps, that we tend to gloss over because we believe that we understand it and know all about it. And to be honest, I think that um, we could get together every Sunday for the rest of our lives and talk about God's grace and never fully cover that one word and all that it encompasses. Uh, It is truly amazing. It is uh, a word that is so vital and crucial to the gospel, that we must understand, that we must begin to grow in our understanding of grace. And each and every day, even asking God that he would help us to be able to just know and understand the riches and the depth of his uh, awesome grace. And so this morning, there's no way, of course, that I can cover the entire scope of all that that word encompasses. However, What I want to do is start by sharing a story, and then I want to look at a few examples from the Bible of God's grace towards his people and what that means for us. And my prayer has been, leading up to this morning, that God would transform each and every one of us, as I always say, from the inside out, regarding his grace towards us and what it truly means to live as people of grace, how we need it each and every day of our lives, and how crucial it is to our understanding of salvation and our reconciliation to our God. It was through our study of Jonah that God really got a hold of my heart to try to understand more about His grace as I read it and was able to to preach through it. I kept coming back to that word, God. You know, we even had that tagline about God's relentless grace. His grace certainly is relentless towards us. And uh, we can't live without it. The new life that we have in Jesus Christ is all because 
of God's grace. And so we should always be singing about it, praising God for it, and telling others about it. Right? So I want to start with this story. It is adapted from uh, an excerpt from a book called Proof by the author Timothy Paul Jones. And he shares a personal story about um, an experience with his adopted daughter and a trip to Disney World. Many of us have been to Disney World. And um, I know my mom loved going to Disney World, and she was one of those. I might have even shared that she loved to, to just plan out every minute of the trip. And she would have it on cards. And even times when I would bring my family and she wasn't coming with us, she would just present us with a whole stack of index cards Here's what you're doing. And we would just be down to the half hour, you know. Thanks, Mom. You know, we, we don't really roll that way, but I have to say it was it was uh, very helpful because uh, she loved it so much. She wanted to make the most of every minute there. And, of course, you pay enough to go and to get in, right? And so you want to uh, be able to make the most of it. But um, uh, Timothy Jones tells this story about his young daughter who uh, who they had adopted and about what he learned about God's grace through this um, experience. He says, I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World could be so difficult, or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's grace. Our middle daughter, you see, had previously been adopted by another family. And I am sure this couple had the best of intentions, but... They never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. So after a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption, and we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whenever our daughter's previous family vacationed at Disney World, they took all their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in the child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so, by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World. She had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, She had always been the one left on the outside. Once I found out about her history, I made plans to take her and our family to Disney World. I thought I had mastered the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. But what I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a stream of downright deplorable behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier just to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to our trip, 
her mutinies multiplied. So a couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter aside to talk through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, my daughter said flatly. You're going to take me, you're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? Now the thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make some sense. See, she knew she couldn't earn her way into the Magic Kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. So in retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that even in a moment, I was tempted to turn her fear to my own advantage. The easiest response would have been, if you don't start behaving better, you're right, we won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her simply, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear-rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong. But you're part of our family. We're not leaving you behind. Now, I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better from that moment. But they didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and every rest stop all the way to Disney. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day, overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, lots of lines, but mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe going back again someday. But in our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted. She was pensive, even a little weepy at times. But her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. And when bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her. I held her close and I asked, So how was your first day at Disney World? She closed her eyes and she snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. And after a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World. But it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. See, that's God's grace. It wasn't because she was good. It's because she was adopted into that family. You know what Ephesians 1, 5, and 6 say? It says, In love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. See, it is all about God's grace, isn't it? We have been adopted into His family. And therefore, we did not earn His grace. We could not work enough for it. 
we could not do enough good things. But grace, very simply defined, is God's unmerited favor. We find favor in the God of the universe, but not because of anything we have done. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which you'll see up on the screen for you. These are the verses that we need to commit to memory. I'm going to share stories from the Scriptures about God's grace, but all in the context of what these two very powerful verses say. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. No matter what version you remembered it in, the King James, the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, it all says the same thing, doesn't it? For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's not of our own doing. I'm so glad it says those next words, that it is the gift of God. Because when we receive a gift, it has nothing to do with what we have done. A gift is given out of love. A gift is given out of grace. And so why then? So that no one can boast. We cannot boast that we earned it or did any better in this life than anyone sitting near us this morning that we are here together as a church able to proclaim that we are saved believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because of God's good grace. So I'd like to take us through a few different examples from Scripture about what it looks like to be in God's grace. First, and I think this is probably the best and maybe the easiest and simplest way to remember this idea of grace, its unmerited favor of God, that it is like a gift. Perhaps you gave and received the gift at Valentine's Day. We do at Christmas, right? We do on birthdays, on special occasions. But just walk through this with me for just a moment. What happens in that whole process when you receive a gift? Picture yourself around the the tree at Christmas and someone says it's your turn and someone goes under the tree and they take a gift and they hand it to you. What do you do next? You take the gift and receive it. Think about what just happened in that amazing exchange. Did that cost you anything? Did you have to pay for that gift? Did you have to say any nice words or do anything? You'd have to write a check for that. You did nothing except reach out your hands and accept the gift that's being given to you. That gift was free for you. But did it not cost the giver something? See, when a gift is given, it costs the person giving it something. They had to give something up, whether it was money or time or both or whatever it was, something of value to them, they voluntarily handed it over to you. Just as an expression of love, really an expression of grace. And all we do is reach out. Scripture calls that faith. In our faith, saved by grace through faith, right? Accepting that gift. So we know in the context of our relationship with God that that gift is free. And I probably can't say that enough. It is the free grace of God. 
It is free to us. But what did it cost God to give us that gift of life, of new life in Him? It cost the very life of His Son, Jesus. Jesus didn't write a check, give up money, or part of His life. Jesus gave up His whole self. He gave Himself for us. It is that ultimate show of grace from a, a God. A God of, God of the universe who loves us that much to show us through the giving of His Son. It doesn't take any effort on our part. There is no works on either side of grace to earn it or to keep it. And it's really that other side of the equation, so to speak, that really the Lord impressed upon my heart to share to share this matter of grace with you this morning. Through conversations that I had and things that I was learning through going through the book of Jonah about God's grace, understanding I think we would all agree and nod our heads when we say, do you believe that it's a free gift and we don't earn our salvation? Yes, we believe that here. We teach that here. That is our conviction. But what about once we receive that gift? Once you receive a gift at Christmas, do you have to then do anything to maintain possession of that gift? Do you have to continue to do some good works or pay for it in order to maintain it? No, that gift was given to you. It was given voluntarily. It cost the giver, but was free to you. So at that moment of salvation through faith, when we receive and accept that free gift, of God's grace, from that moment on, we can have assurance of our salvation. Can somebody please say amen to that? that? That's what it means. Grace leads to assurance. I'll get to that in just a moment. It leads to assurance of eternal life with God. Never having to worry or doubt of our new position and our new life in Jesus Christ. We may struggle with sin. We all do. But that does not mean that we will lose that gift of grace. We cannot lose our salvation. I believe that wholeheartedly. It is a, a, a foundational part of our doctrinal statement here and something you will always hear preached that we cannot lose our salvation. But even beyond that, here it's important to understand we don't have to work for it. Even if we are not showing signs or evidence, we know the works come after that. But you know what? They are not things that will lead to us maintaining our salvation. I really can't say that enough. I wish I could just say it for the rest of the morning in so many different ways. And I hope that God impresses upon your heart. He will say it to you so much better than I can. But once you receive that free gift, you don't have to work to maintain it. When Scripture talks about those good works, that's what flows out of a heart touched by grace. Because of the joy and the peace that we have, you see? Whether it's evidenced in our life or not, you don't have to use that as a barometer of if you're saved or not. I cannot tell you how many Christians I have talked to in my years in ministry and just being a believer who have said, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I didn't earn it. I just hope at the day of judgment I can pass the test. Friends, please. Like I said, 
you got the first half of the equation right. We do not need to fear judgment of God. Yes, we will be judged on our good works. Scripture talks about that. That's a sermon for another day. What we do with our salvation, but it does not. It does not. It does not reveal whether we enter into, as he says in the story, that magic kingdom. You see what I'm saying? There is no works on our part on either side of grace. So please know that one of the beautiful things of grace is that it leads to hope. It leads to hope and assurance of salvation. You know what? We do struggle in life and we struggle with sin and temptation. But isn't it awesome to also be reminded that what have we been saved from? We have been saved from being slaves to sin. Yes, we still sin because we're not yet perfect until Christ returns. Let it be soon. Maybe after lunch. You get an amen. Thank you. But until that day, yes, we will struggle with sin. Its complete effect on our lives has not been yet eradicated. That will in glory. But we know that we do not have to give into it. Because we have the same power that raised Christ from the dead in us, in the person of the Lord, in Lord Jesus Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we have the power and ability to say no to sin. And we do. Sometimes we falter and fail. But yet, that does not indicate that we have lost or are losing or are in jeopardy of losing our salvation. Was that not an amazing story that he just recounted about his daughter? And how he learned from her about the awesome grace of God. She said, I didn't earn my way to Disney World this time. It was all because I was part of your family. Think about grace as the gift. All that happens in that great exchange when you receive a gift, what did it cost the one who gave? But it cost you nothing. In faith, we reach out and accept it. When you share the Gospel, Please include that somehow in your sharing of the gospel, that it's not about works, that it's all about God's grace. For the work was already done for us. And to be honest, you know what? If we continue to think that way and live that way as Christians, that we need to maintain and hold on to our promise of eternal life by doing enough good things, and we just hope we pass that judgment, is that not diminishing what Christ did on the cross? It is. Think about it from that perspective. For Christ did that for us. That leads me to my second description or story. We remember from John chapter 8, the adulteress, the woman who was caught in adultery. Some of your versions might not have it. Um, there's um, discrepancy about whether it was part of the original text or not. But most scholars agree that it is historical. And so, therefore, most versions include it. Um, there probably would be a footnote about it if you don't see it, but the first, I think, 11 verses of John 8. But here's the story. We know it. Do you remember that the religious leaders had caught a woman in the act of adultery? They probably set her up. What are the chances that they just happened to catch a woman in the act of adultery, right? But also notice this. Under the law, yes, she should have been stoned to death. 
But what's kind of left out of the story, maybe he able, was able to escape. But the man was also guilty. He wasn't part of the story, but just make sure you understand that. Under the Mosaic law, the man was also found guilty. But in this case, the religious leaders pull the woman out before Jesus. Why? Once again, they try to trap him. They figure, well, if he says, yes, stone her and put her to death, then he'll lose credibility in his witness among his followers. She's talking about love and forgiveness. But if he doesn't, then he's breaking the law. So once again, they think, aha, we have trapped Jesus. So what does he do? It's a curious story. It's a curious story about what he does. And so he confronts them, right? It says from young to old, they're all around, probably with a rock, ready to stone her, ready to see what Jesus does. And twice he does this. And first, he kind of kneels down and he writes something in the sand, right? We don't know what he writes. There's speculation, but we have no record. So it's all speculation. And then he basically tells to the woman and the people that he who is without sin should cast the first stone, right? That's a... That's a phrase, it's a, it's, a, it's a verse of the Scriptures that a lot of people know. It's even become secularized, right? It's something we say, you know, that he was without sin would cast the first stone. And so what happens? It says one by one, one by one, from oldest to youngest, the mature to the immature, the accusers drop their stones and they walk away. Those who are going to convict, the ones who acted as judge and jury, they recognize what Jesus meant by that one simple phrase. He who is without sin, you cast the first stone. They all walked away. Jesus asked the woman, right, in essence, where are your accusers? She said, they're all gone. He says, you do the same. You go and sin no more. Amazing story. Please think about this. When Jesus says those words, do we know what he's actually saying? When he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone, there was somebody in that group who was without sin. It's the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus, under the law, had every right to pick up a stone and stone that adulteress. But did he? Why? Because he was showing his grace. But why? Even deeper. Go even deeper with me here. Why? Because who was going to pay for her sin of adultery? Jesus was. He knew it. He was preparing to go to the cross. He was on His way. He knew it. He knew what had to eventually be done. He was going to take upon Himself the penalty for her sin. He let her go free. Why? Because He said, in essence, I will pay the price for your sin. So go and sin no more. I'll pay the price for you. Isn't that awesome? Because Jesus was the one without sin. The only one of that whole group who could pay the price. He was the only one who was perfect. How about the Apostle Paul? I alluded to it earlier. In 2 Corinthians 12, we know the story. That Paul, we don't know what it was, but Paul had what he called a thorn in his side. Paul had a thorn in his side. Did you ever get a splinter? And it just stays there? I remember somebody once told me, oh, you don't have to take it out. Just leave it there. I said, the heck with that. I want to take it out. It hurts. Your body will eventually get rid of it. Yeah, I believe that. I don't want to wait two weeks. How about I take it out now? Right? 
But it's like the littlest thing or you get a paper cut. And sometimes like, man, right? A thorn in our side, something that is just bothering us. Yes, we can function. We can do our thing, right? But it's just, it's kind of always there. So the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian we say of all time, the one that had the greatest impact on God's kingdom and spreading the gospel, going to the Gentiles with the good news of Jesus Christ and God's grace through him. What happens? There's this great scene in that chapter in 2 Corinthians. And when he comes before the risen Lord and, and he basically is asking, it says three times, he recounts the story, three times I asked that he would remove this thorn from my side, whatever it was. Again, conjecture. Some scholars say maybe it was a vision problem. Maybe it was depression or anxiety. Who knows what it was? Something physical, mental, we don't know. But he asked the Lord Jesus, would you remove this from me? Take this thorn from my side. And, and it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Haven't we done that before? I mean, here is even the Apostle Paul. He's basically saying, Jesus, if you just remove this thorn from my side, this malady that just keeps annoying and bothering me, it's hindering me from doing more good for you and your kingdom just take it away and watch what I can do. Just do this one thing for me, God, and, and I'll just I'll even do more than I've been doing for you. Have we been in that position before? And what is Jesus' response? Let my grace be enough. Let my grace be sufficient. We sang it earlier. What does that mean? Let my grace be sufficient. What if what if God said that orally to uh, just verbally he said that to us? He just spoke and we heard it. I mean, we have the words here, so it is for us, but what would you say? Yes, I believe in your grace, but can you just take it anyway? Just, just take it away, right? It, it's my back problem. It's, it's the thorn in my side. It's that, that depression. It's that, that nagging relationship issue. Whatever it is. And Paul represents us in that sense. And Jesus says to him, he says to us, let my grace be sufficient. My grace be su- sufficient. I will bless you with what you need. I will give you all you need. You don't have to work for it. Don't worry about it. I understand you have that thorn in your side. In effect, Jesus saying, just, just focus on my grace. Live. Live in the joy and the beauty of my grace. Let that be enough. Let it be enough. And that's, that's what God has put on my heart. Would we let it be enough? Would we let His grace be sufficient so that we don't keep striving and wrestling with God and it brings me, Brings me to my last, my last uh, illustration. We all know about Jacob, right? Jacob, it's a, he's a, an amazing uh, person from the Old Testament that um, we do know some about. But I would encourage you to go back and read. Maybe start in Genesis 30. Uh, the story I'm going to recount to you about Jacob wrestling with God is from Genesis 32. You can make a, make a note of that. Read that story again. There's so much in there but here's why i wanted to highlight it see jacob we know remember god called abraham right to be uh, the father of many nations and he made a covenant he made many covenants with abraham right we know that of course the lord jesus comes through his line and he is the promised messiah and and, uh, god has uh, kept many of his promises there are still some that he needs to keep for us the people of israel uh and um and so on and so forth but you know what we know that abraham had uh, one of his uh, children, Isaac, right? Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. You remember sort of just the outline of Jacob's life? 
You know, we might think of him, yes, his name was changed to Israel and all that, but Jacob wasn't really such a nice guy. He was actually known as a liar, a deceiver, a manipulator. You know anybody like that? Don't look around. It's okay. But you know, even from before birth, what did it say was happening? He was wrestling and struggling with Esau. It said when he was born, what was he doing? He was, because Esau was born first, right? So he would get the birthright. He was like holding on to his heel. His name Jacob actually means like heel catcher, heel grabber, right? Even from before he was born, as he's coming out into the world, he's a troublemaker already. We probably said that about some of our kids, right? Or our parents said that about us, you know. But even from that moment, and then of course we know the story later where he he deceives uh, his brother. First he buys the birthright, right, for some stew, you know, because Jacob makes a stew and Esau's hungry, he's sell me your birthright. And then later through Rebe- uh, through Rebecca, the mother, right, and they and they and they deceive uh, Isaac and they. Uh, deceive Esau and so there's this whole contention throughout Jacob's life and so what happens and so his parents uh, send him away basically saying look there's bad blood here between you and Esau you need to go away and uh, he goes to this land uh, Laban or Laban it's called and he sends about spends about 20 years there okay he says a vision on the way there on the way back, something very interesting happens. There's obviously a lot in there. That's why I say go back and read those chapters in Genesis 30, 31, 32 for this story. But what happens is for about 20 years, Jacob is away and he gets married. There's even deception on the part of his father-in-law. You remember that whole story? Go back and read it. So people are deceiving him. He's trying to just like hold his own. You know that whole thing is like when you... When you, when you cause a deception or you tell a lie, you have to then tell another lie to cover that lie. And where does it end, right? It's kind of the life story of Jacob. It's following everywhere he goes. Almost like he's got to be ready to fight whatever's happening and those around him. So finally, he remembers, okay, the goodness of the land, the promised land. For his father said, you know, come back. Don't stay away forever. You need to come back. And so things aren't going well with his father-in-law. And so... He decides to come back. It's not just him. It's all that he owns. His cattle, his wives, right? Servants, everything. He's making his way back. And he comes to the river. And he actually, in, you know, in his personality, says, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to face Esau. And I know he's mad at me. It's been 20 years. But he's fearful, Jacob is. So he kind of sends a bribe ahead. He's like, just tell Esau that his brother Jacob's coming and kind of bribe him with this stuff and see how it goes. And and he sends kind of wave after wave. And then finally, it says in chapter 32 of Genesis that Jacob is there by the riverside by himself because he has divested himself of all of his earthly possessions. They all went across the river. This is significant. To go back to the promised land. So he is now in this story as night is falling on the precipice of getting back to the promised land. The promised land. And so he's, he's worn out. He's weary from fighting, from trying to come up with another lie, a bribe, a manipulation. You see that? Have you ever grown weary of doing that? We've all fallen into that. And so he's given up all that he has. He's sent it across the river and he falls into a sleep. But what happens? That night, it doesn't, the Scripture does not give any details about the fight itself, the wrestling match. But it says 
that there was a man that wrestled with Jacob. We know from the story, it says it was an angel, but then we know as the story unfolds that finally Jacob recognizes it was God with whom he was wrestling. Because they wrestled all night. And it says that even in a sense that Jacob was overwhelming and over overcoming the man. All night they wrestled. How symbolic that is. It was through the darkness in the midst of the night that he was wrestling with God. Did you ever feel like that? But as the sun began to rise and daybreak came, that's when God's blessing came. Because what happened was, even though it looked like, yes, Jacob was over, going to overcome the angel, God Himself, what does God do? It says He smites His hip. He puts His hip out of joint. Some of you here might even have had a hip replacement. You know, that's not fun. God did that. The rest of his life, he had a limp. But he does that for Jacob because God is making the point, isn't he? God is making the point. Saying, Jacob, you can do nothing without me. You've been wrestling your whole life. You've been struggling with men and with God. And so finally, when he smites his hip, it says, and he can no longer fight and wrestle, it says that Jacob clings to God for the blessing. He wouldn't let him go until it got his blessing, even when God made his hip go out of joint. He's still wrestling with God. See, Jacob had been blessed by God in so many ways, but but Jacob never truly understood the grace of God. He wrestled with men and with God his whole life. Never quite taking the joy and having the peace that God wanted him to have through his blessings of grace. So what does God do? He does bless him. He changes his name from Jacob to Israel. And to this day, we have a people and a nation, Israel, right? Fathered by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name changed to Israel. No longer is his name Jacob. Names meant a lot back then, so it would have been significant to Jacob, his family, and then to the the future generations of Israel. And now the word Israel meaning God fights. In essence, God fights. Why? Because God fought with Jacob. God fought for his heart. So actually the people of Israel took that as a great promise of hope. God will fight for us. God will fight for us. God fought for Jacob's heart. God fought for Jonah's heart. He fought for the heart of the adulteress. For Paul. For Israel, for us as the church, for you and for me. God fights for our heart through His amazing love and His awesome grace. See, it wasn't until dawn was breaking and the day was coming and light was being shed upon the darkness to overcome the darkness that God in His grace finally able to get Jacob's attention. And all Jacob could do was cling to God for his blessing. Why? Because he recognized at that moment that all of his wrestling, all of his struggles, all of his efforts were for nothing. Because God said, I've been blessing you and I want to bless you. Will you accept that blessing? So you know what that means for us? I end with these final thoughts. Let us always cling to God and His grace just like Jacob did. When Jacob finally realized that he no longer needed to wrestle with man or with God or himself, 
that all he needed to do was to finally surrender. God will use whatever it takes to get our attention, won't he? I mean, he had to to take his hip and displace it just to get Jacob to finally recognize he could not win that battle. It was all God. What is he using in your life? What has he used in your life to get your attention to teach you, to teach us about his grace? And you know what? That grace of God leads to our assurance. It's like being born. Did you have a part in your birth? Did you get to decide the day and time that you were born? Did you get to decide who your parents were? Right? What you looked like? All of that? The country you were born in? No. Do you remember when Jesus was asked, you know, uh, what does it mean to be born again? Right? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And what does that mean? It really means born from what? Above. From God. God is the one who causes our physical birth. God is the one who causes our spiritual birth, and it's all through His grace. Just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth, your works, your efforts, your planning, your struggling, your wrestling have nothing to do with the new life that you have in Jesus Christ. Did Lazarus have anything to do with him being raised from the dead? No, it was all Jesus. You see? It was all the Lord Jesus. And that grace that good and perfect grace from above leads us to our assurance of faith, our assurance of eternal life with God. And with this, you know, the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, we just went through Acts 16. What a great picture, a very simplified picture, um, but so important to, to capture in understanding God's grace. It says this, you remember when the disciples at that moment were freed And uh, the Philippian jailer is just overwhelmed. He can't believe what he just saw, what God did for them. And it says, then he brought them out, the jailer did, and he says to them, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what did they say to him? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. To receive that grace of God, we believe. We believe. It doesn't say believe and do some good things. It is belief. Believe means simply this. I think it has two parts to it. Very easy to understand. When it says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, we believe all that Scripture tells us about Jesus. What He claimed was true about Himself and what others did. That He was God incarnate. That He would go to the cross for our sins. We believe those truths, those facts to be true, but then we trust in those truths for eternal salvation. You see that? There's an understanding and believing that it's true. But then we put our trust in it for everlasting life. That is simply what it means to believe. We believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Nothing added to it. This side or that side of grace. I hope you're with me on that. It's so important. So I say to myself, I say to all of you this morning, stop wrestling with God. Stop wrestling with God. Yes, we struggle with sin. That's not what I'm talking about. Stop wrestling with God and accept His free gift of grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. And then you can truly enjoy the peace and the joy and the life of thanksgiving 
the life of worship that is meant for us. Not worrying about the judgment to come. But just focusing your life on saying these simple words that because He died for me, I will live for Him. But He did it. See that? So let us enjoy. Let us enjoy the grace of God and and stop wrestling with God. Once we believe in the Lord Jesus and receive that grace, from then on, would you just live it out each and every day? Show grace to others. Receive God's grace that are new every day. His mercies and grace new every day. Receive it, believe it, and live it out. End that struggle, that wrestling with God. I've seen too many lives just head in the wrong direction and just miss out, miss out on the beautiful love that God has for us. Don't we need peace in our lives in this world? Don't we need joy? It's a peace and joy that only Christ can offer. And we have it. Let us not miss it. Let's enjoy every moment of it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You. God, we truly cannot say enough about Your grace. God, there's so much that we can glean from Your Word. God, we we can't even, just even the Word doesn't say enough or describe it adequately. But God, would You help each of us right where we are in our relationship with You, whether we're seeking and whether we're worshiping You and following hard after You, God, no matter where we are in our spiritual walk with You, God, meet us right at that moment, at this moment in time, in this place, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, God, would You please grab a hold of our hearts? Would You change our minds? And Father, would we truly be able to grasp just a little bit more today about the beauty of Your grace in our life? God, thank You that we could not earn it. Thank You that it wasn't based on what we did or what we do to try to hold on to it. God, we thank You that we know that nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Father, when You say nothing, You mean nothing. And so, Father, would You help us to stop striving, to stop putting forth our efforts, wrestling, struggling with You, God, that we would enjoy a life of grace. God, You want us to enjoy that. Especially in those moments when life is hard and things are difficult, even more so. Thanking You for Your awesome and amazing grace. God, a grace that we truly can't fathom or express, but that we're so thankful for anyway. Help us to live it out. And as you have shown us grace, we want to do the same thing for others. That we would be gracious, recognizing that nobody deserves forgiveness, neither do we. Thank you, Father, for all that you have done for us, your Son, Jesus Christ. May we be known in this church as people of hope, people of peace people of joy, people of love, people of grace. And God will thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and